You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Our sermon text today is from Jonah chapter 4. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, "Please Lord, isn't this what I thought? This isn't isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country?" That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord asked, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. Jonah was greatly greatly pleased with the plant. When the dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted. He wanted to die. He said, It's better for me to die than to live. Then God asked Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. So the Lord said, You cared about the plant, which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. But may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals? This is God's word. Thanks be to God. So good morning. We are continuing through our Minor Prophets. I'm Chad, the other pastor. And uh, I'm excited about what we had the opportunity to do and explore in Jonah. Welcome to... Am I on? I'm not on. Am I on? Okay. Welcome to one of the Sundays that I have been so looking forward to all of my life at least ones that I've been preaching. I've wanted to preach Jonah. Jonah is a fabulous book, and I invite you into my dream Sunday. So congratulations. (laughs) Thank you for being a part of it. No, um, it is an exciting text to dive into, and I would invite you as we continue through uh, into this next book to uh, pray with me before we start that God might open up our hearts, our eyes, to see him more clearly. Would you pray with me? Father, in your kindness, you have given us your wisdom throughout the text of Scripture so plainly in your revealed word. And God, we have the opportunity to open up the book of Jonah, one story that is very familiar to so many, yet God, within 48 verses, contains an immeasurable amount of insight and wisdom into your character and your mercy and your love. God, I pray this morning that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear, and fill us with your Spirit so that we might be made to look more like Christ. And for God, those of us who do not yet know you in your fullness, and Jesus as our Lord, God, I pray today might be the day that we declare as Jonah, I worship the Lord. Father, thank you, and we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So the book of Jonah, it's one that is familiar with many of you. I I, I went 
if you're at all in any Bible background, and maybe even not, the name Jonah, uh, the title, comes with a certain amount of imagery in your head. I would venture to say if someone comes up to you and says Jonah, you're probably inclined to say Jonah and the whale, or if you're a little more particular theologian, you want to say Jonah and the big fish. But uh, in either way, this is something that comes to play. In fact, it's a rather familiar children's story throughout the Bible. I, I did a search because I figured this is what I would see and uh, on Google Images to see what would come up. And on the image search, of course, you know, you've got your popular. Uh, many of them look like this. You've got, you've got the kid's picture graphic. This is a f favorite of mine. It's, he's uh, kneeling and praying, got a lamp in there, and the uh, fish looks excited about it. That's a kind of, we're going with a monster edge here. Uh, the fish is looking kind of aggressive. Um, and then this one is full on some kind of like weird Star Wars planet thing. I don't know what monster fish they have for this one. Um, this, <laughs> pause here, love it because they're just straight up yeeting him out into the ocean. This guy is, they're like, go Jonah. And on top of this, Aaron and I were talking about it. They're going on this long, like hundreds of mile boat journey on this little raft. All right. So um, that's another one. So next here. It's a little more subtle. Huh? You can catch in the background. There's the, the, the fish is still there. He's back. Just kind of dropped off Jonah. And then and one more. Some more subtlety, but epic. Jonah's getting, he's getting thrown off the boat up top. And there's the fish waiting below. So all of these things uh, are, are probably what comes to mind when you think about Jonah. And it's really interesting because the fish only shows up in like two or three verses. I mean, <laughs> It's a, it's a miraculous part of the story and one that hooks for you. It comes to mind. But the really nefarious part about this is that it's somewhat distracting from the overall central important message of the book. It's not just about some fish that swallows a dude. In fact, it might seem strange, but that part is not the judgment part. Like the fish swallowing him is, is, is a rescue. So you're like, I don't want to go swallowed by a fish. Well, Jonah happened to appreciate it at the time. <laughs> See, Jonah is a unique story that shows up among the minor prophets because the rest of the prophets are like this prophet that shows up to a particular crowd with some oracles of God that usually warn them about a potential coming judgment and call them to repent. And we've talked about it like in Obadiah. It was almost like all judgment going on Edom. But it usually and most often ends with some measure of hope. But Jonah shows up and it's like a narrative story out of, out of uh, like the Second Kings type chronicle section of the Bible where we see this story of this prophet, not only he's given a message, he doesn't want to take it, so he leaves. And then these incredibly evil people, it's not even God's people, it's, it's Assyrians, which are not Israelites, they're, and, they're, and they're out there on the other side doing wicked things, and God brings them a message of hope and redemption. And then at the end, there's no closure because it doesn't even seem like Jonah really cares that he's had a lot of, I mean, he's throwing some serious attitude at God. So it's, it's set up and written, many say, very well-developed composition of a story. It's captivating, but really written kind of like a satirical comedy. It's a satire. Like a series of very extreme ironies throughout the story, but that are intended to drill home 
important realities about God's character and his mercy. See, the prophet, rather than speaking, runs away. All the pagans are the ones trusting in God more than the Hebrew, more than God's people himself. And one of the most violent evil nations in the period received forgiveness. And I have a quote here that I picked up from someone. Um, no, I'm just kidding. It's, <laughs> this is a deep track, if you know what I'm doing here. So... <laughs> One of our own, Micah Scott, shared this quote with me, which I appreciated to sum up really what's happening, or at least to convey that the Ninevites shows us that no one is so far away from God that they are beyond his mercy. While Jonah shows us that no one is so near to God that they don't need his mercy. I can't take credit for that when you take my name off of it. So really what the book of Jonah is about is the Lord's boundless mercy. That's what we're looking at. And my prayer for us today is that within these extremes of the narrative that show up, that we would see framed within the extremes a more clear picture of the boundless, abundant mercy and steadfast love of God. So we're going to look specifically at two illustrations of God's mercy. And the first one is the Lord's boundless mercy for his people. Okay, so, so this is super important because Jonah is God's people. He's a prophet literally speaking for the Lord. We see Jonah showing up in 2 Kings where he comes to Jeroboam to say that God's continuing to bless his people. He just shows up one time. It's the only connection we have to this guy that says is Jonah son of Amittai. And the beginning of Jonah starts like this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, and preach against it, because their evil has come up before me. The very start of this story is that Jonah, who's speaking for God, he shows up in 2 Kings. In this particular case, God says, you need to go to these Ninevites, and I want you to tell them that their evil has come up against you. I want you to let them know Give them the word that I see their evil and they need to do something about it. We get nothing else about it. We don't even get a clarification of what it really means the word of the Lord came to Jonah. What it looked like, how it sounded. I mean, in Isaiah, there's visions and other things. We talk about all the way that God comes in thunder. and God shows up in different ways. God chose to speak to his prophets all kinds of ways. At times God spoke through dreams, at other times he spoke more directly. On some occasions God chose to speak through a still small voice and through other means like whirlwinds and earthquakes. It's just God speaking. And I appreciate the fact that it starts that way because we can't shake the fact that God might come and speak to us if you're his people. Like, Jesus literally tells us that my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. So immediately, we're wrapped into the story. If you are one who follows Christ, you might hear his voice. And we have to choose. What are we going to do? What, is, what does Jonah do? Well, Jonah out of the gate, he hears God's word, get up and go to Nineveh. And what does he do? It says in verse chapter 3, Jonah got up. Oh, he, beat, he obeyed the first step. Got up. And he fleed to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. He said the f he paid the fare, and he went down into it to go with him to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He's gone. 
He goes the complete opposite direction. Hey, there's this little narrative thing. We use it today, but it's something that comes up quite often throughout Scripture. It's called repetition, repeating. Like you're really trying to accentuate something. It shows up multiple times. If you're trying to illustrate something in an extreme way, so think about if something is true in the Bible. It's not just true. It's true, true. God is not holy. He's holy, holy, holy. In, in, in Psalms, Psalm 136, it says, every other refrain says, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. I'm trying to drive it home. And we do the same thing. We experience it too. One very uh, well-known such uh, exercise as this would be like MLK, Martin Luther King uh, Jr.'s, Martin Luther King Jr.'s um, speech, I have a dream. What do you say over and over again? I have a dream. He has, a, he has this picture he wants to put out there. This is the beautiful way in which the world might possibly be. I have a dream. And so repetition happens. But in this particular case, there's repetition upon repetition about Jonah's heart. Because three times when we see that God said, get up and go to, to Nineveh, he says, get up. It says that Jonah went down to Joppa. It says that Jonah went down into the ship. It says that later Jonah went down in the bottom of the ship sleeping. Down, down. God said, get up. He said, I'm going down, down, down. On top of that, he says, where? Go to Nineveh. And we see three times it says, Jonah got up and went to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and he went down to go with him to Tarshish. Where's he going? Not Nineveh. <laughs> Complete opposite end of the world for them. All right? Then we also see, and don't miss this, why is he going down? Why is he going to Tarshish? Because it says he's trying to go from the Lord's presence. It says he's going to Tarshish, what? From the Lord's presence. And then he says, going to Tarshish with him from the Lord's presence. God has called him to speak for him on his behalf, and he's trying to flee from his presence. And then later in the story, when we see the storm come, it says that the people on the ship knew Jonah was fleeing the Lord's presence. Three times. Three repetitions of three. Jonah is extremely trying to avoid God and what he's asked him to do. He is set up in this sense to show us what does it look to completely go away from what God has for you. Matter of fact, it's interesting because God is, not only is Jonah the prophet trying to flee the Lord's presence, he's trying to avoid him, but the very fact that he thinks he can flee the Lord's presence is pagan. Like, like that's a pagan God, territorial God thing. Like my God lives in Athens and this God lives here. And he's like, if I go to Tarshish, I'll get away from you, Lord. He knows that's not true. And what's even underlying for people who know this is that Tarshish is literally the other side of their known world. It's on the end. It's like modern-day Spain at the other end of the Mediterranean. You go past that, you're going to the Pacific, and that's kind of dangerous. We're not doing that, right? So he's getting on a boat. You want to talk about his commitment to not listen? Most scholars look at this and say with ports along the way, this is probably a huge ship going hundreds of miles, probably going to take a year trip. He is committing himself to something that says, I don't have to go at least for a year. Then we'll, then we'll retouch this. We'll, God, I'll give you a chance to reconsider. Or maybe, hopefully, Nineveh will just go ahead and be destroyed before I get done with this trip. And how does the Lord respond? 
Well, verse 4. The Lord threw a great wind into the sea, and such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. The sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out and fallen asleep. Crazy storm going on. Everyone on top is freaking out. Jonah's like, I just want to go to sleep. Listen, when I was, uh, when I was in high school, I thought it was a dream. I remember sleeping. I was a heavy sleeper. Still kind of am, but it, you, know, you get a family. Things get a little more sketchy. So, so I, I'm, I'm sleeping, and I remember I heard a little bit of frantic stuff going on, but I was like, ah, whatever. Rolled over and went to sleep. I found out the next day the smoke alarm had gone off in the house. Didn't get up. There was a, uh, our, our wood stove, I mean, a big wood fire stove, this thing's get hot. Right? We had this like decorative kind of like fake plant thing on the mantle, and it fell on the stove while we were sleeping. Just started smoking the house up. I kind of faintly remember like my dad like running down the hall, but I was like, hold up. <laughs> this is Jonah. Storm things are going crazy. He's like, I got to take a nap. <laughs> he has resolved himself to trying to evade the Lord, even to the point of just, I just need to go to sleep. And he's down in the bottom of the boat. And this is the point that we see additional irony show up. Because now the pagans are being more God-fearing than Jonah. The captain approaches him in verse 6 and says, What are you doing? Sound asleep. Get up. Remember, he's, he's been going down, down, down. Almost prophetically, the captain says, Get up. Call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we don't perish. You notice that Jonah has yet to pray at all. You're fleeing from the Lord, you don't talk to him. It's kind of the point, right? Trying to avoid somebody. And so the pagan appeals, you speak to your God. So the rest of the sailors come up with a really bright idea. Come on. They said to each other, let's cast lots. It's a, we'll know who is to blame for this trouble we're in. This is a way of appealing to the gods, to appealing to, to find out if we throw this dice out, it's usually it's dual colored, and we get some yes-no questions, we can figure out who's causing the problem. And in God's sovereignty, after hurling the storm at them, we also see that in this casting of lots, he, he points out that it's Jonah's fault. They cast lots, and the lots single out Jonah. Let's try it again. Yep, it's Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us who is the blame for this trouble we're in. Who, what is your business, and where are you from? What is your country, and what people are you from? And with irony of irony, Jonah has the audacity to say, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord. I don't want to do what he's telling me to do right now, but yeah, he's mine. Matter of fact, in other translations, which are totally fitting, it says, I fear the Lord. And he is not acting like a man that fears the Lord. Interestingly enough, the pagans are the ones who are in fear because right after that in verse 10, when they hear he say, I worship the Lord, the God of the heavens who made the sea and dry land. You know, the one that made everything? It says the men were seized by great fear. And they said, what have you done? What are you doing? That's your God? You're a Hebrew? Are you kidding me? Like, there, there's a sense in which the word got out, right? We got our gods, but... We don't mess with your God. The men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because that's what he had told him. So they said to him, what should we do to you so that the sea will calm down for us? 
for the sea was getting worse and worse. And Jonah answered them by saying, pick me up and throw me into the sea so that it will calm down for you. For I know that I'm to blame for this great storm that's against you. It is in the sense of what we read here. This is what over and over scholars, theologians, they look at this and they say he's just resolved himself to just death. And we see it come up later in here. He'd rather die. He just knows that what God's asked me to do, he doesn't want to do. And he knows he's fleeing from the Lord. He's like, just throw me in the ocean. It'll be better for you. And the men, nevertheless, rode hard because they didn't want to do it. They didn't want to kill him. They didn't want to do what was wrong in the sight of the Lord. Matter of fact, they called out when they realized there was no other solution. In verse 14, please, Lord, they're praying. Jonah's not praying yet. They're praying. Please, Lord, don't let us perish because of this man's life. Don't charge us with innocent blood, for you, Lord, have done just as you pleased. We know that you're doing what you want to do. It's, it, it very much echoes the psalmist who says, God, you're in heaven, you do whatever you want. He says, we know you're doing what's right in your eyes, Lord. Don't judge us because we're trying to do the best we can. So we're going to throw them overboard. So don't hurt us. They picked up Jonah. They threw him in the sea. And the sea stopped. It's raging. The men were seized by great fear. And look at what happens. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows. Many people, many commentators say this is a point in which conversion happens for the rest of the boat. Can you imagine? I mean, this is power evangelism. This is, this is, this is a, a new work coming into a tribe and healing people. And everybody's like, yes, we want that. God, you are the God most high. And God responds as well. Once he hits the sea, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was, in the, Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. So the contrast and the extreme is set up. Jonah is fleeing, fleeing. I'm going to Tarshish, I'm going to Tarshish, I'm going to Tarshish. He is completely outside God's will. The people in the boat, the pagans, are more honoring of God than he is, yet he's the one who's the prophet. It's the same kind of rhetorical device that Jesus uses when he talks about the good Samaritan. The priest goes by, that should be the one that helps the person, right? Nope. Levite comes by, he should hurt. Nope. Who's next? It's the Samaritan, that dirty, nasty people we don't like. He's the one that helps. Here we see Jonah should be the one that fears the Lord. He's not praying. He's not calling out the Lord. The pagans don't want to kill him, but they do it. They're the one who's actually being reverent to God. Jonah has not prayed. The pagans pray. Jonah is set up as an extreme for us, and no matter what Jonah does, God's mercy is on display the whole time. Three times he runs away. Three, to three times it's repeated. And three times we see God's mercy poured out on Jonah. Storm was sent to stop him from fleeing. That's actually a disciplinary mercy, but that's mercy. Don't go for my will. Come back to me, to restore him to me. The fish is sent now, we see, to actually save his life. I mean, I don't know about you. If you I don't know if Jonah's a swimmer. He's a prophet. He might not be athletic. I don't know. But by the next chapter, it seems like he was on the verge of death's door. If didn't die, I don't know. He's down in Sheol, which is the place of the dead. And Jonah is, receives a fish to save his life. And then later we're going to read, as you just saw here in chapter 4, that God then sends a plant to try to soften Jonah's heart. Mercy after mercy after mercy God is pouring out on his people who are fleeing him. And here's the encouragement for you. 
Okay. Here's the encouragement for you. If you are one who are God's people, and this is what I mean, listen. You love and worship. Like God is the one that you worship. There's no other gods before him. Like your heart's set on that. And, and here's the thing. I believe Jonah that God's his God, but he is totally not living it. God does not love some future version of you more than he loves you today. God does not love Jonah less. He pours out his love and his mercy abundantly on him, even in his rebellion. And that's an encouragement to us because if you're like me, and you have some kind of a sin you can't shake or some challenge you just feel like you can't face or temptation is knocking at the door every other day or you just, you know what, I just had a bad day and I just showed myself with my family and I have treated them poorly or whatever extreme you might walk into. God does not love some future version of you more than he loves you today. And listen, it might not go well. I don't think Jonah liked the storm. I don't think he loved being in a fish. He didn't like the scorching heat, chapter 4. But if you are his, that's loving discipline. That's not judgment. He's not trying to kill you. He's not trying to harm you. He's trying to, like Jonah, restore you to himself. And ultimately, the reason that we can know that's true is because of Jesus. Like, like, Jesus points to Jonah. Like, we see an extreme prophet who is completely rebelling and disobedient to God go into the bottom of a boat and go to sleep. And he does it because he's trying to get away from God, not trust him. And then you go to Jesus. And he goes into the bottom of the boat and takes a nap too. And there's a storm raging. But it's not because he's trying to flee God. It's because he completely trusts him. He's obedient to the Father. And he's listening to all the chaos. And Peter comes down and says, what are you doing? Can you help us out? And instead of having to be thrown into the water to calm the storm, Jesus is the one who has authority over the storm. He stands up and calms it himself. He is the one who is obedient where a prophet like Jonah was not. And then Jesus in Matthew also says, like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so I will be in the earth for three days. But I'm going to rise again. Jonah goes down to a very uncomfortable and unsettling situation in the belly of a fish because of his rebellion. But in his obedience, Jesus submitted himself to death. And in three days, he rose and conquered sin on our behalf. We can trust in the mercy and abundant, rich love of God because he sent Jesus. That we don't stand in our own righteousness, and neither did Jonah. He's an example of not being righteous whatsoever. You could be like, hey, at least I'm not being like Jonah. God still loves me. 
And I think that's okay to make that comparison. Look, I'm not running away. I'm trying my best, God. And I know your mercy is more. But also there's a challenge for us. And here's the challenge that I'd like to lay for at your feet. That we not flee from the voice of God. Like, remember when it says that the word of the Lord came to Jonah? And, and we see Jonah as this extreme and just trying to avoid it. But we don't know what it sounded like. We don't know what he heard. But some of us aren't so different. Because when Jesus said that my sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me. If you are one of his, you should hear from him. And at a base minimum, can I tell you, we've got his revealed word. I'm not talking about some random prophecy in your room. I'm not talking about Jesus showing up in your closet, you know, meeting you when you're brushing your teeth at night and talking to you about what comes the next day. I'm talking about the fact that God has revealed himself and yet we still struggle to obey him there. To not hear his word and to flee from him. So if we pursue him, my first encouragement to you is this. If you think for some way, reason in some way, you might be not heeding to God's word in your life, my first encouragement is to you is to do what Jonah didn't do and to pursue God rather than fleeing from him, to pray, to ask him to reveal to you, ask him to speak to you, to show you where you're failing to be obedient, to show you where you're not listening to his word and be prepared to hear the answer. Because God says, whoever prays for wisdom, he'll give it to you. He doesn't give any kind of clauses on that. He doesn't say like, as long as you're doing the right thing, I'll give you wisdom. No, he says, whoever asks, I'll pour it out on you. So be prepared. And finally, I would encourage you is this. If you have ever had a sense or an impression or a drawing towards anything, like missions or ministry, don't ignore that either. I, I, don't ignore that either. Like, I don't want you to assume that just having an inkling of a desire, like Jonah is being called to mission work. And I'm not suggesting to you that just to have an inkling of a desire is necessary, mean that is what you should pursue, but don't ignore it. Don't ignore it. Um, interesting enough, my own story I've forgotten was not too terribly far from that. I wasn't like outwardly trying to race away from the Lord. But I didn't realize at some point during my childhood in high school, I had some thought of being a pastor. But I'll be honest, what I saw was not appealing. Like, dudes I knew were like up here slamming pulpits and yelling. You haven't seen that a lot here today. Um, I can get my heart into it, but it just didn't, it is like, I don't think that's right. I, I'd forgotten that. Because later, I actually, I couldn't find it. I was upset. I, I, maybe some of you guys are journalers. I go through spurts where I try to do it. And apparently when I was in college, I was in a bad space. I was at a military school. It was my own making. Um, but um, <clears throat> I was having a bad spot, and I wrote down something that I found years later. I'd forgotten that I said, maybe this is what happens when you're not following what God has for you. I'm not <laughs> All I'm saying is here I am. So our encouragement to you is if you hear that, if you feel like God's leading that, I, I, would, I would argue this, and maybe someone else has a different opinion. Odds are it's not a false and lying spirit trying to get you to do missions and ministry. Odds. I'm not, I'm not gonna go out 
I'm not a prophet nor a son of a prophet. I'm not going to go out and say 100%, but I would put the money that that is not coming from the enemy. And if we can walk with you in that, as a church and as God's people, that's what we want to do. We want to feel that confirmation from the Lord because just like he repeats it three times, God doesn't like to just like drop a bomb and then walk away. He will confirm. And so don't run from God's will for you and his desire for your life. And what happens with Jonah when he's laid down into the belly of the fish for three days? He begins, it says, he begins to pray. Maybe he was kneeling with a little lamp like that picture had. But he says, he prayed to the Lord from the belly of fish. I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out for help from the deep inside Sheol. You heard me. When you threw me into the depths and the heart of the sea and the current overcame me, all your breakers and your billows swept over me. And I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. The water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gate shut behind me forever. Then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. And as my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. And those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah to dry land. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up and went to Nineveh, according to the Lord's command. Now, Jonah finds himself at the end. I'm not praying this for any of you, but some of us have got to get swallowed by a fish before we get there too. Maybe that was me. Maybe that's why it took so long. But Jonah came to the end of himself, and he recognized that it was God. He prayed to God for the first time in this entire story and says that I will, pr I will fulfill my vow to you and what you've commanded me to do. So he goes to Nineveh, and that's where we see the Lord's boundless mercy for the lost. Look at Jonah chapter 3 again. He got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. It says that Nineveh is a huge city. Honestly, Nineveh is that kind of Assyria as a whole, the country, that's what this is, is actually in a low point in its history. They were pretty powerful for a period of time, and they're actually struggling pretty good here. So Jonah's probably like, I don't know, why do I want to come here? He has the freedom for some reason to walk their streets, which might not have been the case in time past. It says that he went down through there and said, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. He's not giving them any hope. He's like, guys, 40 days, you got 40 days, get your affairs in order. But how do the people respond? Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne. He took off his royal robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes. And he issued a decree in Nineveh by ordering of the king of his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. And furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth. And everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that he will no, we will not perish. 
And God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways, and God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. (laughs) So the promise is you're going to be overturned. Commentators look at this and say it was actually an interesting play on words. Jonah just says you're going to be overturned, but it's going to be one of two ways. You're either overturned because you're destroyed or you're overturned because you change your life. And the Assyrians chose the latter. In fact, here we see what's interesting about this. When I talk about this place's extremes, we know historically about the Assyrian Empire, the kind of evil that they did. They loved the fact and were proud of what they did to people in other nations. They would raid and invade, and anybody who had any value was the only person spared in most cases. They had no problems punishing and killing and doing creative, gruesome deaths. Archaeologists have uncovered many of their written down stories. They recorded these in pictorial reliefs. And they found this information. The Assyrians would torture their captives, including flaying. Do you know what that is? They would cut strips of skin and peel them off. They would behead people. They would impale them, inserting a sharpened stake beneath their rib cage and leaving them a living victim on the stake, just stuck on it, stood erect until the stake pierced a vital organ and eventually they would die. They would burn people, especially babies and children, alive. Sever hands, feet, nose, tongues. They would gouge out eyes. All of these things they recorded because they were just proud of what they were doing. If anyone deserves judgment, it's them. Yet God offers them mercy. Like God actually shows them mercy. And how does Jonah respond? Jonah was greatly displeased and he became furious. He prayed to the Lord, please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord asks, is it right for you to be angry? It's an open-ended question. He doesn't get an answer from Jonah in this moment. Jonah's furious. And to be honest with you, he's a prophet from northern Israel. That's where Assyria invaded. His family, his friends, all those things I listed probably were victims. Like, like, like Assyria and Nineveh is set up at such an extreme for us because who in here could blame someone who had that kind of an anger towards the people that did that to their family and friends? Like, I'm not feeling abundant joy and mercy. The joy of the Lord is my strength in that moment when flaying and burning kids is going on in front of me. Like, like there's a little bit of where we can laugh at Jonah. Like, wow, he's a terrible prophet. But I'd like us to empathize. Which one of us are ready to go plead with people to come to the Lord who do that? And, and part of the grace for us is that Assyrians are here as an example of the extreme nature of evil, yet also the amazing, abundant mercy of God. Like, how much less do we stumble over when it comes to showing grace and mercy towards other people? Like, how often do we not not concerns that Jonah has and the anger that he's showing, but we are stumbling over maybe worshiping our own comfort rather than bringing the gospel to a neighbor or a friend. 
Like we, we look at Jonah and it's easy to judge, but at the same time, it's also a reminder that there are so many little things that we allow to be excuses and reasons for us not obeying and following after God and what he's already called us in his word to do. And yet God shows so much mercy and continues to show it to Jonah himself. And the next part, the wrap up of the entire book God begins to illuminate even more the foundation for his love and mercy. In verse 5, Jonah left the city and he found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and he set in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Jonah's literally going to set up on top and he said, hey, it's all going to overturn. And it's almost like, I don't know, pay-per-view. He wants to sit up and see it happen. He doesn't want to see him repent. He wants to see it destroyed. I don't know if he's looking for Sodom and Gomorrah, like he's looking for fire to rain down and destroy this place, but he's kind of excited to see it happen. So he goes up on the hill. He says, there's no way these evil people are going to repent. So I'm going to watch it. And while he's there, it says that the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. And Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. So imagine you guys ever found a nice shade tree, huh? Anybody like to sit out in the way? This guy, I mean, he's literally out in the middle of a space where you could probably die from the heat. So it's even more important. And there's a plant he's got that's going good for him and protecting him from the sun. We don't know what it looks like exactly, but we know that Jonah's happy with what situation he's got because he can see what's going on and he's right there under the shade. But then when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and it withered. And as the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted and he wanted to die. And he again asked God, it's better for me to die than to live. So God asked Jonah in a follow-up question, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And this is when Jonah answers him. <laughs> He's got some attitude. <laughs> and I see myself too much in this. So, yes, it's right. I'm angry enough to die over a plant. <laughs> and the Lord said, you cared about the plant, which you did not labor over and you did not grow. It appeared in a night and it, perished in a night. You cared about this plant, this, this, this non-human that you had nothing to do with. Verse 11, so may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which was more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish their right and their left as well as many animals. God's response is, I made them. They're my creation. And they, they look at them. They, they, he says that they can't distinguish their right from the left. They don't know what they're doing. They're evil against me. And they don't even know what they're doing. Why then should I not show them mercy? Why would I not have love for them? You cared so much about this plant. And I'm sorry, this kind of hits a little bit too hard for, for me because I have a lot of things other than people that I've had to ask myself, why do I care more about this than them? my time or my possessions or whatever it is I'm holding on really tightly to, my comfort, my space, whatever I'm worshiping, apart from caring about what God cares about. And he's trying to shape Jonah's heart to care about, that there are people who are literally dying without me who don't know what they're doing. Why would I not care about them? John, 1 John 4, 7 and 8, 
tells us this, dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And the one who does not love does not know God because God is love. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. And friends, just like Jesus' parable about the Good Samaritan, and just like the most important laws that he told, he said the, the greatest commandments, you cannot love God and hate your neighbor. And just like we started from the beginning, God gave us some extreme situations to show that's true. Assyria was vile, yet God shows them mercy. And there are so many things in this world, but let's, let's, let's really talk about this. There are so many things in this world that are intended and set up for us to pick a side that have nothing to do with the gospel. And if we're not careful and we're not guarding ourselves and we're not examining our own heart, we have the very real potential and may already be in a situation where we are showing hatred for other people based on things that have entirely nothing to do with God and his mercy. Because they have a wrong view about something politically, because they voted the wrong way, whatever that is, because they chose to eat at the wrong restaurant for that you that week that you'd rather go somewhere else. I don't know what it is. They're extremes. But there are plenty of times where we have chosen hatred and division when God over and over and over again says, I want restoration and I want you to show mercy. Jonah's a narrative that stands out from the prophets as a whole, but it is a really, really applicable picture into the abundant, boundless mercy of God that he shows us even when we're wayward, and he wants to pour out on all those who don't know him yet. And we're filled with a world that does not know their left hand from their right. And I mean, like Paul tells us, so were you before God. Let's be a church that hears the word of the Lord, that follows in obedience as best we can, that trusts that his mercy is sufficient for all our failures, and that seeks to find the lost wherever they are and share this hope of the king who loves them and to point them to Jesus. Let's pray to those ends. Father, in your kindness, we're grateful for Jonah. We're thankful for this message, which is so 